Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are in the season of Lent again. As I mentioned earlier, the colors are different. The tone of the liturgy is different. And the text, in a sense, is different. In today's reading, Jesus is in the desert. And the question, of course, is what's he doing there? And to answer that question this morning, I'd like to address it in this way. Leading up to Lent, I've been listening to a fascinating podcast. That podcast is called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And I highly recommend it to you for your spiritual growth and development. The first episode in the series is called The Rise and the Fall of the New Atheism. And it's a fascinating take on how a cast of characters with names like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Sam Harris were able to so brazenly capture the imagination of our current culture with simple statements like the God delusion and God is not great and turn those pithy phrases into literally a worldwide phenomenon built on one fundamental, if very flawed, dare I say, fatal proposition, God does not exist. Their plan was cunning and effective. They launched a frontal attack on religion in general, and especially on Christianity in particular, through books, articles, interviews, and debates. And they leveraged the ever-increasing power of social media to spread their message. With one hand, they took a scorched-earth approach to the spiritual world. And with the other hand, they tried to feed the world with a steady diet of materialism. Basically, what you see is what you get. And where did the fuel for their fire and the seeds for their food come from? As the podcast acknowledges, they came from the so-called Age of Enlightenment, which also, interestingly and significantly, is called the Age of Reason. But you could also say that their resources have almost always been there. Almost. At least since Genesis chapter 3, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Now, the ability to reason is a gift from God. The faculty of reason is what helps us make sense of things. But here's the thing. Morally speaking, human reason only works properly in the context of divine revelation. What do I mean? I mean that through reason, we can see that a man and woman are designed to go together, for example. But how many men, and how many women, and for how long? Divine revelation is what has told us that one man and one woman go together for life. 
In other words, separate human reason from divine revelation and you open yourself up to a recipe for disaster. To illustrate further, let's mix in the ingredient of individual liberty, which emerged as one of the central doctrines of the age of reason. Now, there's nothing wrong with individual liberty. After all, there are indeed certain inalienable rights. But the ingredient of individual liberty must be mixed in carefully. In other words, human reason plus individual liberty minus divine revelation might create something like what history has now called the sexual revolution, which has done everything it can to tear up, tear down, and tear apart the most fundamental of things which has been designed by God himself to point us to himself the nuclear family, a father, a mother, and children. In other words, separate sex from its God-given intended purposes of one man and one woman for life in the bonds of holy matrimony with the possibility of having children, and this is what you get. You get people who start to say things like this. What we do behind closed doors is nobody's business. After all, we're not hurting anyone. Really? What about the two people who are behind the closed doors? It's hurting them. And after that, people will start to say things like, my body, my choice. Okay, well, what about the other body that's inside of your body? What choice does he or she get? And then one day, some will ask, why can't two men or two women be joined together? And then some people might even say, why can't I change my gender to match whatever I feel like I am? And one day, they might even say something like, what is a woman? And why can't a man who thinks he's a woman compete in women's sports or use a woman's bathroom or worse? And guess what? This is exactly how the so-called sexual revolution has unfolded in the so-called age of enlightenment. All of this is on the podcast. And to bring it all back to this modern movement called the new atheism, well, isn't atheism the perfect curtain wall for a new kind of kingdom in which all people could now peacefully coexist and feed themselves and fan the flames of their own desires. In other words, if we could just dethrone God and remove the religious world uh, rules, then we can make up our own rules and live our best lives according to what each one of us individually thinks that might be. And how will we do that? Cunningly, Richard Dawkins had the answer. This is what he said. He said, we'll just get the brightest minds in the room and they'll figure it out. That answer is so obviously fraught with so many flaws. But then something very unexpected and rather inconvenient happened to the new atheist movement. Something also addressed in the podcast. Something, as J.R.R. Tolkien might have said, that the ring didn't expect. The problem of pain attacked. 
It tore down the walls. It invaded the castle. And it crashed the coronation of this shadowy and vacuous antichrist. And then it marched right into the pretender's chamber into the very bed that the age of enlightenment and sexual revolution had made together. And do you know what we called it? We called it the Me Too movement. It turns out that powerful men couldn't just have their way with women. Someone finally stood up. Thanks be to God, the women stood up. Lots of them. And they said, this is wrong. And we have a word for it. And that word is called rape. And suddenly, some people began to take a closer look at this new atheism. And they began to see cracks in the foundation of the castle they had built for themselves. And the walls began to crumble. For someone had dared to say that something was objectively wrong objectively morally wrong. And as the castle and the kingdom came crashing down, some were crushed underneath the rubble of moral relativism. And when the dust settled, they started to ask each other, are you okay? Are you okay? And they found out that they were not. So they began to cry out in pain for their antichrist to save them. And this is what they heard in reply. Eh? Well, I guess that happened. I guess that happened. For atheism has no real answer for the problem of pain. And some began to feel disillusioned, jilted, like they had been sold a bill of goods Because if these problems are real and we know that they are, and if our pain is real and we know that it is, then the answer can't just be, "Eh, well, I guess that happened. Think of, think of, think of the worst problem you're facing right now. Think of the worst pain that you feel right now? What if you told someone about it? And what if the reply you got was, eh, well, I guess that happened. Nobody would do that, would they? Not even an atheist. Not even an atheist. Now that's not all of the story, nor has everyone's attitude changed about atheism because of these things. But here's what happened next. As their kingdom crumbled and the stones of moral relativism that crushed them began to dissolve into the sands of time, they started to feel like they had been left out in the wilderness. And they experienced a new kind of suffering in the wilderness under the scorching heat of a life without God. And they began to hunger again. And they began to thirst again. Only this time for spiritual things. 
And here's how one woman described her experience in the wilderness. Can you identify with this? She said she felt homeless. She said she felt homeless. And I wonder, have you ever felt homeless? Like you were all alone in the wilderness of your pain, whatever that pain might be. Hoping that someone might find you there and rescue you and bring you home. May I say to you this morning that there is a God-given reason for that. Remember how I mentioned Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us that after After Adam and Eve had sinned against God, he drove them into the wilderness. In other words, if we don't want to be with God, if we don't want to live in his house, if we are unwilling to abide by his rules that he has divinely revealed to us because he loves us, then he will let us go. And he will allow us to experience a life apart from Him, wandering in the wilderness of this very broken and sinful world, but only because we said that's what we wanted to do. After all, doesn't every loving parent give rules to a child that he or she loves? Don't touch the stove. It's hot. It will burn you. And so today's gospel tells us, and the season of Lent reminds us, that in the wilderness of our rebellion against God, we actually won't be alone. We will meet a cast of characters. Wild beasts, for example, who represent the animalistic instincts of our depraved appetites when reason throws off divine revelation. And soon... And soon, we will encounter Satan himself, the enemy of God, who will take our unfettered thoughts and tangle them into the thistle that grows in a depraved mind until we are fully wrapped into a demonic thicket. And then this is what will happen. And then we will experience the kind of unrelenting pain that will cause us to cry out for mercy as the thorns of sinful agony do their God-given job. But here's the thing. In the moment we cry out for mercy, we will realize that there is someone else in the desert. Jesus is there, the very Son of God, And he too has been driven there. The text tells us that this morning. He too has been driven there by the very Spirit of God. And why? To defeat the devil. He's been driven there to defeat the devil. And as he tears down the dominion of the devil, this is what he's doing. He's releasing us from his grip. 
He is freeing us from the guilt and the shame and the separation and the isolation of living a life apart from Him. That's why Jesus is in the desert. He is there to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us, and finally to bring us home. I want to say this to you this morning. He hears your cry of pain. He hears your cry of pain, your cry of pain. Whoever you are and however you found yourself in the wilderness. And his answer is not, eh, well, I guess that happened. No, his answer is this. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly for you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And as Jesus leads us from the wilderness of sin and separation to the garden of paradise that he has prepared for those who love him, he will feed our starving soul with eternal food. Bread, that is his body, and wine, that is his blood. And all of this, because he loves you. My friends, do you, do you know that? Do you know that? Here's what I think. Somehow I think that deep down, everyone knows that. Somehow I think that deep down, everyone knows that. That deep down, everyone wants to live a life of repentance and faith. And if you find yourself in the pain of a wilderness this morning, I say this to you. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Here we are. Here we are. A body of believers in a shopping center in Fort Worth, Texas, who are just like you, flawed yet seeking to be faithful to Jesus because Jesus is faithful to us to seek after us and to save us because he loves us. Sent here into the wilderness of our lives to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us, and finally to bring us home. Welcome home. Welcome home.